good to have you with us. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you are listening to Life Learnings, conversations with Christians about their lives and ministries and how faith has impacted their lives. My guest today is Pastor Gordon Lee, whose official ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist Church has spanned more than five decades. He has been a pastor, missionary, church administrator and university lecturer. Our initial focus today is his life and ministry. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you. You were called to ministry in November 1959. What were you doing at the time? What was your situation? I was teaching for the Queensland government in Brisbane and uh, I'd been there for five years. How did you come to get into teaching? Well, I originally wanted to be a missionary to the South Pacific Islands, so I went to Avondale College when I was 18 years of age to uh, graduate in the ministry, and uh, that never happened. I graduated, but I I never got picked up in the ministry. So you had been waiting for some years to receive this call then? Ten years. Ten years. (laughs) You were still only a young man at the time. Why ministry? Well... When I was about 12 years of age, I'd been interested in spiritual things. My mother was a good Catholic and father Anglican. We attended the Anglican church, and I, for a time, helped out in the altar as as an altar boy. But uh, I was interested in spiritual things until um, I was asking a question of the the priest, and uh, he got angry with me because I had no right to ask questions like that. And he said, if I did that, I'd end up as a heretic. Well, I wasn't sure what a heretic was. It could have been some bad disease. But uh, I was still searching, but not not willing to ask questions. Okay. So between that time when you finished college um, and when you received the call, it's close to 10 years, what were the sorts of things that you did during that time, just briefly? Well, I sold literature, Christian literature, door-to-door in Queensland for a year, but uh, during the drought time it was very difficult and uh, my income was almost negative at times. And I went, uh, after 12 months trying at that, I went on interstate transport driving between Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide. And so you did a few other things in between as well, and I guess we can talk about those perhaps later in the interview. Where did ministry take you first? Once you received this call, where did it take you? Well, when I got the call in 1959, it was to go to Samoa as a teacher, head, heading up a school in in Samoa. So how long were you there? Only two years. And where did you go next? Well, I, I got a call to go and teach in Paparoa in Cook Islands, but on my way there I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be a teacher, I was going to head up the work down there in Cook's. So you call to ministry, but you basically end up as a missionary. Was that where you wanted to be? Absolutely. That's where I always wanted to be. So tell me a little bit about how that came about. After that call, how did you, uh, how did you make the transition from your teaching career to, to being a missionary in a quite different context, obviously? Well, as a, as a missionary, when I was teaching, I used that as an opportunity for winning souls uh, to a knowledge of the, the Lord Jesus, and this every school morning was a was a worship time. The first hour was set aside for Bible and uh, the preaching of the Word. And during the vacations, I used to go out and do evangelism around the island of Savai, and 
found that very refreshing, very very helpful. So you've worked in Samoa and the Cook Islands. Where else did you work in the South Pacific? Well, five years in the Cook Islands, and then I got an an invitation to go to Fiji to um, administer the Central Pacific Union Mission, which covered all the islands from Vanuatu or New Hebrides, it was called at that time, and New Caledonia, uh, through Fiji, uh, the Gilbert Nellis, uh, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, and Tahiti, the French Polynesia, and Pitcairn. So tell me about those different countries. How did you how did you find them? Well, a large portion of it was Polynesian, and uh, they're a very gracious people. Uh, they are very skillful in learning, and um, I enjoyed even with them and the Melanesian people. But in Fiji, there was a lot of Indians, and that was helpful to me because uh, I knew a few words in. Hindustani, which my parents had taught me because they had been in, in India. What were some of the challenges you faced, I mean, working across all these different cultures? Language was a, a major one, and I did my best to uh, be able to understand, even I couldn't re- re- speak it very well, but I was able to understand most of the languages. I had ter- been taught French in uh, when I was in high school and don't remember anything of it. <laughs> Along it, with a few other people, I'm sure. It came back to me as I was in French Polynesian and uh, New Caledonia, and uh, I really enjoyed my fellowship with them there. But I found that the the best way of, uh, or the most exciting way, was to preach the gospel. Everywhere I went, I wanted to preach the gospel, even on Pitcairn Island. Did you do that in the native languages? No. Uh, I did it in with an interpreter or in some places in direct English where English was well understood. I imagine that after being in those countries for some years, you would have a reasonable grasp of the languages. Were you, did you have a facility with languages? Or did they come easily to you? Um, yes, to be able to hear it with understanding came very easy. Being able to recall it and be able to produce it fluently was a bit more difficult. Hmm. Um, Pigeon, I, I think, was when I got over into New Guinea, in that area over there, Solomons and New Guinea, I, I found that uh, Pigeon came to me very easy, and I think it was a gift from the Lord. How did your wife handle all this? Uh, we had one child, two children when we went out there. The youngest was just six weeks old. Uh, the eldest was uh, my son, and he was just six weeks old at the time. Then the third one was born in the Cook Islands, mm-hmm. and she was there for five years without seeing anybody outside of her immediate family because we had no way of getting out to get a furlough. What impact do you think this had on your children to go through these experiences? In many ways, it was a wonderful experience for them. It taught them how to uh, associate with people not, not exactly like themselves, and they, they enjoyed every moment of it and uh, we were able to get them a good education through correspondence or in special schools that were conducted in those areas. And your wife was supportive of your work? Very supportive, very faithful, very loyal. What are some of the other challenges you faced? I mean, obviously, there's the, there's the language barrier and the cultural barriers. Um, South Pacific's not exactly like Australia, where you were born. Um, was it difficult living in different sort of living conditions? Well, I think the Lord was good, kind to us in putting us into Polynesia first 
because um, living conditions there was much better than what uh, some have had to suffer when they've gone into other places like areas of, of the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and New Guinea, was very, very primitive and it was much more difficult for families in those conditions. Did you come home on furlough? My first furlough was after two years in Samoa and on the way round to the Cook Islands we got a short brief stay in at home but then it was five years before we had a furlough again out of the Cook Islands because of transport problems. What was it like coming back to Australia after spending that amount of time away? Uh, we enjoyed it. I think my family enjoyed it very much, getting to know and meet up with their own uh, flesh and blood in the homeland here. Uh, I was always keen to get back again. What was it like to to come back and to and to live again in your own culture after being away from it for that significant period? Well, I found that people were all very interested in what we'd been doing. For example, when I came into Brisbane there one time, I was wanting to find out a bit more about the Cook Islands and so I I asked around and finally got to the naval office to find some charts of the Cook Islands because I had no idea where they were or anything like that. And the news got round to ABC television and uh, they asked me to come in for an interview. So I was able to tell them what I'd done in Samoa and uh, the the lady who introduced or did the interpreting with me and interviewing she uh, was a Miss Australia. So uh, I, I found it very interesting that the people wanted to know that our churches were always interested in stories from the islands. Mm-hmm. And um, I was asked to preach on a number of occasions, was able to use many of my experiences as illustrations for the sermon. In what ways did these experiences change you? I think it helped me to grasp a greater faith that... Uh, as my favourite text tells me that uh, if we can ask, the Lord will we'll provide. And he did that. What was the most rewarding thing that you did in your time as a missionary in the South Pacific? Well, everywhere I went, and I made it a practice that each year I would conduct at least one evangelistic program because most of my life was as an administrator. Um, there was only one year when I was a church pastor, and that was uh, years later when I was in North Queensland. Mm-hmm. But uh, I found that even though I was enjoying the visiting around the various islands and seeing the development through administration, uh, my greatest joys came when I was able to preach the word and to uh, see people one to Christ and be baptised. Do you have any particular story that stands out? Yeah, I guess one of the most exciting ones was in Vila in Vanuatu, New Hebrides it was called in those days. We uh, built a little church there in Vila because up until this time our church had very little influence in that city, in that town which was the capital on the island of Afati. As a matter of fact, I think our membership at that time was about 35 or 36 and we decided to put a, a church there because the only place where... Our people used to meet for worships was on uh, in the school, little school that they ran there. And I uh, said, well, if you're going to build a church, make it a nice one. Uh, we were able to get some more money towards it so that it was a little larger than what they originally planned. And uh, I had the privilege of conducting the first evangelist campaign there. And I went for a month, preached every night for a whole month, and uh, 
as a result, we baptised 185. That sounds um, like you were able to have a significant impact. Is it still like that today? Yes and no. Where where there's a hungering for truth, where our word is presented uh, strongly and with confidence, we're having the same. In Honiara at the moment, the, the, the place is on fire for the Lord and... Uh, I've been able to send Bibles out to them because that's been my practice since I've retired is to get Bibles out there because when Jesus was praying and telling me, he said uh, that they're, it's the word that converts them and if they have no word, well, they don't have him. Mm-hmm. So I've been getting Bibles out there. So tell me a bit about your Bible ministry. Well, it started when I was at, uh, working in the division office just prior to my retirement because of the requests were coming for Bibles. And uh, with a few friends and members of my family, we've been able to do that. And in the past 15 years, we've uh, averaged about 12,000 Bibles a year to the various parts of the South Pacific, New Guinea, Solomons, Vanuatu, uh, Fiji, Samoa, places like that have received Bibles that are come as gifts and they're for free distribution. So anyone who wants a Bible can get a Bible, essentially. Yeah, although we don't give them out willy-nilly. We, we want to make sure that they just go out where they're going to be used. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a representative in each uh, area where I send them, the, the, the Bibles are shipped to them. Like just this uh, last week, we sent 6,150 Bibles out to the Honiara. And Pastor Titus Rory is my representative there. And uh, he's a retired man now from the education work of the church. And uh, he makes sure that those who need a Bible get a Bible, but he makes sure that they're not given away carelessly. Now, you've talked to me about your time in the Cook Islands. You seem to have made a significant impact there. Can you tell me what you did? And I know that you were on a government committee. You even became its chairman in the Cook Islands. Tell me how that happened. Well, yeah, well, uh, when I went there, our church was very... uh, down and discouraged. They had no leadership for over six months. And uh, I realised that there needed to be a stirring up over there. And this was my first administration area in in the islands. And I decided that we'd do all we possibly could to get things moving. Money is a big problem in the islands. It's very, very difficult to have enough funds to do all that you would like to do. But I saw that we had resources that were owned by the church. For example, we had Paparara School, which had 190 acres of land and uh, very, very fertile land, but we were not making use of it. And so I decided that uh, we'd get the people together and uh, have them help us to build, put more coconut trees in because the old ones were getting so old they were not profitable. We had a citrus orchard planted. We planted about 35,000 bananas in the hope that we would be able to ship them to New Zealand. During the winter months out there, not that you ever have a winter, but we would grow tomatoes and beans and peas and things like that, and we'd ship them through to New Zealand. And it was so successful that it aroused the attention of the, the president, uh, uh, and he decided that he would bring his cabinet out to see what we were doing at Paparoa. And... Um, he was interested in getting the whole of the Cook Island doing this because when you have a new government, new independence, 
you're looking at ways and means of financing it. And uh, he brought the group out there and they were so impressed. They said, if we, we could get this going in every island, we could make this uh, new nation uh, profitable. And so he said to me, we're going to form a committee and we'd like you to be part of the committee so that you can tell what you've done. Well, I did that, went on the committee and they said, well, you know where you're going, we will make you the chairman. So that's how I became head of that committee. And each village was then asked to uh, tidy themselves up and make their villages beautiful, improve the roads. And in other words, it became a community effort. It was not just employees of the government. It was everybody was to be part of it, which we had done. And uh, it was a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, in the village I lived in, Titicavica, uh, we got that operation and uh, the Prime Minister, he came out and set a committee there and and uh, asked them to form a, a, a committee who would care for the village. And they asked me to be the chairman of that first committee that was formed there. And so I became the first mayor of Titicavica. <laughs> It was quite funny because I told them, no, I said, I'm, I'm here to preach the gospel, but uh, I'm not here to be a mayor. He said, well, you're not going to be paid for it anyway. <laughs> Sir Albert Henry was a very close friend of mine. And uh, although we had many disagreements as to education, he was opposed to churches running the education. He thought the government ought to run them. And uh, he was sick one time with the flu and I visited him in his home it was just after one of their graduates from New Zealand came back and absconded with a large sum of money from the government and and I, I promptly reminded him that mission schools not only taught them reading, writing and arithmetic, he taught them how to be honest and true and faithful. <laughs> he had a bit of, took it as a bit of a joke and joined it with me. And, but we had a wonderful uh, relationship there. When we were leaving the Cook Islands, I don't think anybody up until then or even since has received such a a farewell. The Prime Minister came down with his cabinet and uh, saw us out onto our boat to leave on our way through to Tahiti and then flying home to Australia. What impact do you think working as um, the chairman of this committee and uh, as a mayor had in relationship to your ministry? Well, I think You I didn't th see it as a conflict, did you? No, I didn't allow it to become a conflict. I wanted to continue my, my work as a administrators of the Seventh Avenue Church and a preacher of the Seventh Avenue Church and they understood that but we were anxious to show that we were not separate from the community, we were part of the community and as a result of that uh, I was asked to think up some other ideas other than agriculture where that could be uh, helpful and so uh, I could see that we had a lot of oranges which were not fit to be sent through to New Zealand for sale, but were good quality oranges with blemishes on the outside, but good inside. And I said, if we could only juice them. And we managed to get uh, Greggs of New Zealand to come out and set up a factory in in the Cook Islands, and they produced the Roro orange and grapefruit and something like that in, in cans. We also had um, them bring out materials from New Zealand to make uh, men's shirts and shorts. And we set up a an industry for where the young ladies could, could sew. And uh, that became a very profitable one and continued on for many years. So it was things like this that uh, 
I was part of, but I was not part in. Uh, my thoughts were there, my committee times were there, but I still wanted to be a worker for, God, for the Lord. Mm. Well, the gospel's all about the whole person, isn't it? Not Absolutely, just, yeah. Not just the spiritual, it's mm. about the social and, yeah. the, and the physical and, um, and mental. Yeah. And so what impacted the um, changes that you incorporated in, in the Cook Islands have on, on the people generally? Well, I, I received a lot of respect, which um, normally I probably not have received. And I was known by everybody, so when I conducted meetings, everybody came along. So it had its, uh, its advantages in that way. Wherever I ran evangelistic meetings, and as I say, I ran at least one every year or possibly more in the Cooks, uh, we had large groups of people coming and we saw a great growth in our church as a result of it. The concept of the missionary isn't so popular today. People see that as sort of some sort of cultural imperialism. Well, I think we've earned that in some respects because we've been there a little pompous and and standoffish. We have not got down with the people. We preach from up above sort of thing, and I, I think what we've got to do is get with the people. So your work with them probably broke down some barriers, I imagine. Well, for example, when, when I needed a lot of staff to improve our property in Paparoa, I just put it to the church members and their friends and said, all right, we'll run the truck around the island and every uh, weekend, Sunday morning, we pick up everybody who'll come and work for the day with us and uh, we had up to 100, 120 people come. When, when you get them working with their bush knives and axes and what have you, you can do a lot of work in one day and... Uh, with that way, we were able to get much done in a short period of time. And we'd finish up by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd feed them with rice and fish and rice. And uh, then they'd stay on till dark playing games. And uh, they thoroughly enjoyed it. Once a month, that's where they'd be. Tell me about the dozer in the Solomon Islands. Oh, yes. Well, this is where I think... Um, it goes back to what the Lord was doing in those 10 years that I didn't get picked up after graduating from the ministry. I often question why, 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 Lord? Because uh, I did interstate transport driving. I worked for Thies Brothers in Queensland, uh, way out in the west and uh, near Emerald, where we ploughed 40,000 acres for the British Food Corporation. And there I learned to handle uh, heavy equipment I also worked in the bush up at Warhope, pulling logs out of the timber logs out of the bush there. So I became uh, equipped with mecha mechanical things. And when I was appointed to New Guinea in Rabaul, there were movements in nationalism with the independence coming, and so we were having to realign some of our mission areas. And the headquarters in Sydney here decided it would be best if we set up a new headquarters of Western Pacific, which was mainly the little independent nations that had been under British rule. And then New Guinea was a very large area. Fiji was different. And so we put up what we called the Western Pacific Union Mission. And we had nothing there in Honiara because that was to be the headquarters. We had a school and a very small church area at Honiara and it was given my responsibility to find land and then to prepare it and supervise the building of a new headquarters 
an enormous task, but um, I went down on my first occasion, flew from Rabaul to Honiara, looking for land. I finally found a, found a piece of land close to the, between the airport and, and township, and uh, not far off the road, close to our school. We have a large boarding school there. But when I went and had a look at this piece of land, it had kunai grass about six foot high and was quite raised up from the road, which was good because the the big river there can flood and we didn't want to be in a flood area. And um, I remember cutting myself through that with a couple of helpers and finding out what, what the land was like under this kunai grass. And finally we decided that was the place to be, but what an enormous task it would be to put in roads and houses and office, etc. So the next time I was heading from Rabaul down to the Honiara to see what could be done, I was looking for equipment to be able to do it. And sitting next to me was a man, and this is where the Lord comes in. And it happened so many times. I, I just found that when you work with the Lord, he works with you. And uh, when we were on the plane, I talked with this man. I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm... I handle heavy equipment. I'm bringing my, wanting to bring my equipment down to Honiara and set my business up here like I've got in New Guinea. And he said, I want to find a place where I can leave my equipment for a month or two until I establish the business. And uh, I said, oh, I can give you a place where you can leave your equipment. And, oh, he said, how much will you charge me? And I said, oh, it'd be no charge at all. He said, you mean to tell me you look after my equipment for the time and not charge? And I said, yeah. But I said, there's one, one thing. I want your D6. You've got a D6 there. I want, to, I want to be able to use it. What do you want to use it for? You're a minister. You can't use it. I said, I used to work for Thieves Brothers, and uh, that, they had me driving D7s and D6s and D8s over there. Oh, he said, uh, well, yeah, what, what, what do you do? I said, I've got this piece of land where I've got to level it out. I've got to put a road in. I've got to put uh, five, ten house plots in and a place for a school. And he said, all right, you can have the use of the equipment, no cost at all except that you put the fuel in it and you maintain it. I said, that'll fine. And so we made an agreement. So the Lord provided the means for us having it there. And I found that happening so often that the, the Lord was there before us. So looking back, you can see that that period of time between when you um, finished college and when you received your call to ministry wasn't a wasted time, oh, obviously. No. I thought it was at the time. But uh, the Lord had in mind many things. Looking back, do you think that um, you were adequately prepared for your ministry? Well, I don't think you're always adequately prepared. You have to have a lot of faith and lean on the Lord very heavy. And that's where I found that every morning I was up five, five or six o'clock at the latest and spending time in study the word and praying because uh, each day there was issues that had to be handled and I wanted the Lord to handle them if necessary through me. So you had the you had the preparation through these sorts of um, jobs that you'd performed, but you still didn't have the full skill kit. So you had to rely on the Lord to get through these Absolutely. experiences. Yeah. What's your most vivid um, memory as a missionary? Well, there's so many of them that um, it's hard to say which is the most important one. I think where you see amazing miracles happening like it happened to the early disciples Jesus said to them uh, I'm going to send you out I'm giving you power to heal the sick cleanse the lepers cast out demons freely you have received freely give and and I used to claim that promise that uh, 
when I was confronted with any issue like this, that the Lord will be there to do the part that was necessary, which I couldn't do. We're going to go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Gordon about his early life and influences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Thank you for your prayers and financial support. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you are listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. I'm talking with Pastor Gordon Lee. If you've just joined us, I'm talking with Gordon about his life and ministry. In the next half hour, I'll be talking with Gordon about his early life and influences. Gordon, your father survived the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was an Englishman born in Yorkshire. Tell me about him. Yes, but uh, he, as a young boy, he went to India with his military parents. And uh, when war broke out, he left India and went back to England and joined the Bombardiers and uh, was in the Battle of the Somme. I know that there were something like a million ca- casualties in the Battle of the Somme stretching over a few months in 1916. Being a bombardier, he was a bit further removed from the from the front, bombardier. wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Mm. I also understand that your um, father-in-law survived the Somme as well, but he was an Australian. He was an Australian, he? an Irishman from, from Australia. But he joined up and, uh, of course, they never met, but uh, they both got through the... Uh, Battle of the Somme. So it's a bit of a miracle that you're here anyway. Yes, it is. What about your mother? What was she like? My mother was actually born in India. Her father was the manager of the Cornpore Woolen Mills. And uh, when she was seven uh, and my dad was nine, they met because, you know, when expatriate people are in the country, they kind of get together for gatherings and that's when they met as children. And they corresponded, I understand. Well, my mother's... uh, Mother died when she was young and she was sent back to England and was reared in a Catholic convent. And my dad, and she used to correspond, but when he went to England to join the military forces in 1914, she continued to correspond to him while he was overseas. And when uh, they returned, he returned from the the battles uh, after the close of war, uh, they got together and were married. Was that a happy home? Yes, it was a happy home with the, the seven of us in the, in the family and uh, we always had a very wonderful union of together. What was the attitude to religion in your home? My mother was extremely religious, uh, I guess, with the training that she had. My father was a good, uh, good living man. I wouldn't say he was extremely religious, but uh, he lived by the principles of uh, Christianity. Tell me about your siblings. Where do you fit into that? 
I'm in the middle. I've got three sisters older than me and three brothers younger. So there were seven children in seven the family. Children, seven children. Yeah. Seven children in the family. That must have been a bit of a challenge for your parents. Quite a challenge, and particularly when they went through the uh, years of the Depression. I can recall that now, although we didn't recognise it as children, but uh, the hardships that my mum and dad went through was absolutely amazing. When did they come to Australia? Uh, well, my my eldest sister was uh, born in England and she was about two or three when uh, she came to Australia, so I'd say it was about 1924 or 25. What brought them here? Well, after the war, the First World War, things were pretty serious in, in Europe and uh, they had the opportunity of migrating to Australia and getting work and uh, a better lifestyle in which to bring up their children. So where did you migrate to in Australia? They came into Victoria, so I guess I'm a Victorian. But um, And you were born in Victoria, weren't you? I was you? born in Victoria, at Yachuka. And what year was that? 1927. What did you like to do as a child? Well, we always had property, uh, never, never lived in town much at all. Uh, we liked to be out in the properties. Most of the areas where my parents worked was in isolated areas. And uh, it was during the Depression years that my dad had to manage businesses uh, that had gone bankrupt, small uh, general stores and things like that. So he would be moved around quite a bit. And we always had uh, enough land to have our own cows and get the milk and so forth. What's your most vivid memory of that childhood? My sister Norma, who was two years older than me, uh, we used to love to get out together and we'd have our ferrets and we'd go rabbiting, getting rabbits, and we'd go across the countryside all day with it. Then we got the the gold bug. We'd been taught how to pan for gold, and uh, we had some wonderful time panning for gold. And I can remember Mum always say, you must be home by sunset, and we'd be panning gold and looking up to see where the sun was going. <laughs> as it was just about on the end, we'd pick up our goods and run for home as fast as we could. How did you come to get interested in religion? Well, we were taught uh, spiritual things by our mother in a very beautiful way. We never knew it as religion. We knew it as the principles of life. Tell me about your conversion. Well, when we moved to New Merca, I was still interested in attending the church. When we were out in the country, sometimes we were so far away from church, we, we never attended a so church. So what church was that? The Anglican church. And... Uh, I was asked to help out at the altar as an altar boy and my first reaction was, uh, well, yes, I'll do that. I'll be happy to do it. But when I asked a question and got frowned on by the priest and got very angry with me and told that I shouldn't ask questions like that, I'd end up as a heretic. Well, I wasn't sure what a heretic was. It was either some disease or something like that that I might catch. And I was afraid to go continue there. And I went along to the Methodist Church for a time then, uh, knowing that there was about four churches that, that uh, were in the town and uh, a Bible, I didn't know anything else. Never heard of Seventh-day Adventists uh, or Pentecostals or what have you. But there's a lady used to come around, an elderly lady used to come around on a Saturday afternoon delivering a paper called Signs of the Times. And I loved that paper because I could read there and get answers for questions without being called a heretic. And I used to share them with my younger brother, John. And we got so interested that one day I asked her, where does this paper come from? And she said, Seventh-day Adventist. And I said, oh, I've never heard of them. 
She said, are you interested? I said, yes, I am getting lots of questions answered. Would you like somebody to come and study with you? I said, yes, that'd be wonderful. And so she said, I'll find somebody to study with you. So how old were you at the time? Twelve. That's unusual for a preteen, isn't it? Well, I guess that was the training of my mum and dad. So what happened then after you started these studies? Well, this man that taught us was a man by the name of uh, Pastor Gerald Peacock. And he was a big man. And uh, he was an ex-missionary from the Solomon Islands. And he used to tell us so many wonderful stories. And I thought, man, that's what I want to be. I want to be a missionary. And that's where it grew. Now, as a teenager, you were a very good swimmer. Tell me about your experience as a competitive swimmer. Well, I used to enjoy swimming very much. And uh, each year there would be carnivals with the schools competing in the northeastern districts of uh, secondary schools in Victoria. And uh, I represented them in the finals one time and I won the championship. And I knew that I would be asked to go into... Um, the Olympic team and train in the Olympics because I was told about this and I thought well I've become an Adventist and I've been baptised in Adventist and maybe this would interfere with my desire to be faithful to and true to the principles I'd received and so I was determined not to. You were faced with a particular choice around this time weren't you? Yes well to understand this better you need to understand my mother although brought up as a Catholic became very much involved in spiritualism. She had trained as a spiritualist medium in a trumpet seance. And we used to, on occasions, see evidences of spiritualism in our home. And while I was battling with this issue of whether I should go in the team of the Olympics, um, I was sitting in my bed one night and saying my prayers got into bed and as I got into bed there was somebody sitting on the end of my bed that I'd never seen before. You actually saw this? Actually saw it. Uh, somebody sitting there. Not. It was sort of a glowing person but not a real person. Whether it was just a, a vision of some sort. But that voice said to me um, I can make you a champion. I can make you a world champion if you'll let me. You surrender your life to me and I can make you a world champion. And it battled within me. I, and I jumped out of bed and I got on my knees again and I prayed, Lord, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do, be right with you. Because I recognised that this was a spirit the same as my mother had been playing with. And uh, I got back into bed and I slept the most beautiful sleep I'd had for a long time. Mm. Got up the next day and won the championship. So that was a turning point in your life, obviously. Very much. To make a choice to actually yeah. go with your religion rather yeah. than something yeah. that offered you some yeah. sort of fame. yeah. Your mother also um, had an experience around this time as well. What was that? Yeah, well, this was during the Second World War. My dad, being a military background, he joined up as soon as the trumpets blew and he was off at war. And uh, my eldest sisters were away and I was the head of the family sort of thing as the male member of the family. And and my job was to make sure the doors were locked at night and everything was set and fires were in, in control and I'd gone into bed and I lived in the bedroom right up the top end of the, the house. The, my mum was sitting at the table in the kitchen and uh, when I was in bed I heard someone run up the, up the front passageway and out through both front doors, the, front, the main door and the fly, door, fly screen door. And I thought, now that's odd because 
I locked those. I'd just locked them not many minutes before. How come? And so I got up out of bed and I opened my door and went out in the passage and I could see the light was still on in the kitchen. And I started to undo the doors or check on the doors and they were still both locked. And I heard my mother say, it's all right, Gordon. Um, it's okay. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Just go back to bed. So I went back to bed and uh, I thought, well, that's really odd. And then some months later, my mum said to me, she said, uh, that time you had the experience of somebody going through the passageway, she said, that's the night I determined that I was having nothing more to do with spiritualism. I was surrendering my life totally to God. So she recognised this was not the right the right direction for her. She had learned. She had been studying with a, an Adventist pastor also, and he'd been teaching her many principles, which, of course, were contrary to spiritualism. And uh, she wrestled it that night when that uh, spirit was cast out, when Mum said that she was finished with it and the Lord drove that spirit away. Were there any other manifestations of spiritualism in your home? You mentioned before there were some. What were the sorts of things that happened? Well, not in our home, but uh, I've come up with them in some other places. For instance, uh, when I was in Western Australia, uh, there was a man there who was had no religion whatsoever and, and uh, he kept finding things happening in his home. And uh, it started off with his son, who was about a 17-year-old boy, who was sitting at the television watching it when he and his dog suddenly saw the door opening slowly and creaking as it opened and they felt somebody came into the room and the dog sat up and the hair standing up on the back of its neck and growling and so he told his dad when he'd come home and the, the father told him, oh, you're just an idiot, uh, nothing like that will happen. You've been watching that idiot box too long, you know, and pu- pushed it off. But then... Um, Sometime later, he noticed things were happening in the home which were quite odd. The door of the fridge would open up and things would begin to spill out on the floor. And He was going up the passageway one evening with some, a tray of food he had put ready to sit by a television and watch television while he ate his meal. And he suddenly threw the, th- the pan up in there, the plate up in the air and everything spilled on the floor and he thought he must have skid on a banana leaf or something and couldn't find out anything. And... Uh, and so he decided that things were happening in that home which were not right. And one morning, Saturday morning, when things got so bad, he ran out of the house. And as I say, he was, he was an unbeliever. He didn't believe in any religion. He was an atheist. And he ran up the street because he could see some people going into wielding. It was a T-junction of his, from his street. And he got inside that there and he felt so beautiful and calm. He said, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord, <laughs> you know, like that. He even wondered why he said it. And then he talked to the pastor over, which was um, uh, the Adventist pastor there, and he came to see me later and he said, um, this man's got some problems. We're asking, would you come and help him? And that's when I went and visited him at home and he had been uh, clearing out of a cellar for one of the ladies nearby and put it in his truck and taken away and he found a box of books which uh, he thought were too good to throw away so he'd left them in his truck and brought them home. And when I talked with him, he said, no, I don't believe in any religion at all. I don't have, there's no God. I just live and when I die, that's it, it's finished. And uh, I said, well, anything happened in the last couple of months? He said, oh, yes. He said, "Uh, things have been happening in my home. I said, well, when did it start? What happened a couple of months ago? And he he kind of didn't... uh, 
think of it for a moment. Then I said, oh, yeah, I bought a box of books home here. He said, they had a sort of blue light glowing from them when I saw them in the cellar. And I said, where are they? And he brought them out. And they're all books on spiritualism and devil possession and using this, the spirits to do things. I said, well, these, are, these belong to the devil. I said, this is where it's coming from. I said, you get rid of these and you'll get rid of the problem in your home. Well, um, he took them out that very night and poured some diesel in over it and burned them in the backyard because he didn't want anything to happen. Did that solve the problem? Yes. As a matter of fact, I didn't see him uh, much again until some years later I happened to come up with uh, the pastor who had been in charge of that church and I, he, he'd one, been to see me and asked me to go and help him. And I said, what, what happened to that man? Oh, he said, I baptised him. He's now a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> A lot of people would say, well, you're just imagining these things. Yes, it's pro probably true because um, the devil likes to deceive as much as he possibly can, but when you come face to face with it, and I've had many experiences where I've had to come face, with it, face to face with it, it's very real. Now, you finally um, got to Avondale College and yes. studied there. You had four years there. I did five years altogether. Uh, my last year was a broken year, and I went back the next year to finish and graduate with a diploma in ministry. And I worked for 12 months uh, as a culprit selling spiritual books in Queensland, up around the Nambour area. Not very successful. There was drought on and it was difficult. And uh, I was never picked up in the ministry, and it was a very, very bitter disappointment to me. When did you meet your wife? I met my wife at my last year in college. And when did you marry? I married when I graduated after 1950, in 1951. So you finish this diploma in ministry, you're out working, and you don't get an immediate call to come into ministry, and um, you're married at this stage, and you went truck driving. Yes, I wanted an interstate trans transport driving because I need to earn some money. We were poor as church mice. And... Uh, so I went driving and I had an accident which laid me up for a little time and then I went off selling international trucks and then I was asked to manage a dealership out at Roma in Western Queensland and uh, the fellow I worked for was not truly honest and so we parted company and I ended up working on a ship and cattle station. Tell me about the accident in the Blue Mountains. I was driving a truck loaded with uh, equipment from Adelaide through to Sydney and the brakes failed on Riverlet, and uh, the truck rolled over and I injured, injured my back. So you had to spend a bit of time in hospital? Yes, I spent some time in the Lithgow Hospital, but then went home and was nurtured at home in Queensland. So you end up working on a dozer in western Queensland. Yes. Was that, was that difficult with, a, with, no. an with an injured back? No, I, I was... I, after I'd been able to um, get myself uh, in life again, I found that if I kept my back straight and didn't move in certain directions, I could keep the, the, the vertebrae right. And every now and then it would come out and I'd have trouble sort of wriggling around on the floor on my back trying to get it back into place again. But uh, I didn't have any trouble out there. Did you enjoy this work? I mean, you... You obviously, your hopes have been dashed a little bit in the sense you hadn't received the call to ministry um, and you're moving from job to job. Were you settled at this time? No, I was not really settled. Um, I was very unsettled, if anything, but 
it was fading more and more every every year that went by. It was fading the the vision that one day I'd be a missionary. I just thought it would never happen. You still maintain your church connection, obviously. Absolutely, yes. Um, when I came back into Brisbane and joined the church, uh, joined the uh, education department up there, I became elder of the South Brisbane Church, and we had a wonderful time there for five years. Tell me about that time in Western Queensland. That with the Thies Brothers? Yeah, with Thies Brothers. Well, I was working in their workshop in in Brisbane, and Les Thies came along and he said, Gordon, you, would you be interested in driving a, a D7 or a D8 out in uh, Kunlaringa? I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we've got 40,000 acres to plough out there. Would you be interested in going out and working on that? He said, it's pretty rough growing, but uh, you live in a tent and you feed yourself and it pays good. And I said, well, if the pay's good, that's what I need. So I went out there. Did you take your wife with you? No, she remained in Brisbane. She was working at that time for Cotties, the jam makers. I remember that, actually, because um, when I was a um, student at primary school, uh, a man who lived just across the road from us used to drive the Cotties van. And I can remember how we would uh, vie to be the one who sat in the front of the van as, <laughs> he, as he dropped all of us kids off at school. Mm-hmm. How did you come to be a teacher? Well, I was working on out at Roma at the time in on the sheep and cattle station and uh, was beginning to like it because it was very educational work. I was developing fodder conservation for the uh, owner of the property and uh, learning much about agriculture and equipment. And uh, my sister-in-law was getting married in February, so I went down to the wedding and while I was down there, I visited one of my friends, whom I knew very well, who worked in the education department. And while I was talking with him there, he said, oh, we're desperate for teachers. We've got a tremendous shortage of teachers. Uh, and at that time, the, one of the inspectors passed by and I was introduced to him. And he said, oh, if you've graduated from Avondale as a minister, you've almost done the teacher's course because they, they run almost parallel. He said, would you be interested in coming teaching? I said, oh, no, I've never wanted to be a teacher. And uh, he said, well, we want you. We need you. Well, we want you to come right away. I said, I can't. I have to give at least a month's notice. Will you give a month's notice and then come down? So I went back with sort of two thoughts in mind. And because my wife would be happy back back in Brisbane instead of working on a, living on a ship and cattle station, uh, I told my boss that I had the offer and would he accept a one month's uh, leave, you know? So he said, well, I'm going to miss you because you've done a very good job here and I, I like you very much, I can trust you. And he said, but if that's what you want to do, he said, you you, you leave, give me one month's uh, time. So I sent a, a wire back to the education department that I wouldn't be able to come down until the end of May, uh, March. And... Uh, they sent a telegram back straight away, come when you can. And so that's how I ended up becoming a teacher. Did you enjoy your time as a teacher? I loved it. I loved the children. Uh, each child and their parents became friends of mine. I used to go and visit the friends, uh, the family at home and in their home and see them. And What impact do you think being a teacher had on your ministry? Did it make you a more effective communicator? Oh, absolutely. No question. Um, the... Uh, the value of uh, teaching principles is so important even to the minister. And you had to do some additional studies too, didn't you? Yes, I did some at the Queensland University. So 
that five years as a teacher was really an important preparation for the work that you were going to do later. Yes, very much so. Now, your parents later became Seventh-day Adventists. Was it, was it at the same time? No, my mum was uh, the first to become an Adventist. My sister Norma, she became an Adventist. Uh, my eldest two didn't become members of our church. My brother John and I came together. My brother Bob, who's a builder, he, Bob the Builder, you know, <laughs> and uh, he became an Adventist. But my youngest brother was not interested. But uh, there's only the two of us, John and myself now, who uh, uphold the, the faith. If you had your life over, would you do it all again? Yes, I'd be... If, provided I can remember the pitfalls I fell into here, I'd make sure that I didn't do it the next time. Yeah, I'm sure we all have some regrets about things that we've done and maybe things we could have done differently. What's your faith meant to you? Well, without faith it's impossible to please him and unless we please him, our life's not right. And so I wanted my life to be totally dedicated to him. I've made mistakes and failings and weaknesses, but... Uh, like Paul, it, it's been upward. I want to be upward. What have you learned from your life that you would like to share with our listeners? The most important thing is your constant daily contact with the Lord. If you don't have that, you're going downhill spiritually. And I find that it's necessary for me to rise early in the morning while my mind is clear and to spend at least a half hour in prayer and then uh, another hour in the study of the Word. Are you able to do that today? Absolutely. I even do it more. What's your great hope for the future? Well, my greatest hope is the return of the Lord Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. He said, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. I want that more than anything else. I want it for myself, for my children, for my family. Is there a favourite passage of Scripture that you have that you yes. could also share with us? And why is it your favourite? Jeremiah 33, 3. Call on me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And I found that that's so real, so perfectly fulfilled in so many occasions where I've been confronted with the evil one and I've take, taken it to the Lord and he's been my protection. Where there's people who have been sick and we've anointed them, they've been healed miraculously. Not that anything I did, but by uh, asking the Lord to do it and he's done it. Mm. Thank you, Gordon. I've appreciated being able to um, talk with you today. I'm wondering whether you'd like to just close our conversation today with a prayer, but a prayer for our listeners. Our loving Lord, we are so grateful that we can approach your throne at any time. Jesus has told us if we come in his name, you will hear us. And it is in Jesus' name we come because we're not worthy. But we want you to... Bless those who are listening in and who hear this story, that the glory may go to the, the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace. May the Holy Spirit work on the hearts of each one, the children, the youth and the adults, that all may surrender their will fully and totally in readiness for Jesus' coming, is my prayer in his name. Amen. Thank you, Gordon. I've been talking with Pastor Gordon Lee about his life and ministry. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.